Take your Bibles and turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. As we just sang that song, the Lord speaks to us through His Word, and we're looking at His Word today together as we do every Sunday, as we do throughout the week in our other services and so forth. We're looking at God's Word and what He has to say to us. So we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 14 today. In April of 1978, Oral Roberts was given permission by the state of Oklahoma to build a hospital. He said that the Lord told him to build. Roberts said God told him to build a medical center and gave him the details and a vision during a sojourn he had in a desert in the, in the California desert. Further said Roberts, God told him that it was to be open debt free and that he would ask his partners or donors to send contributions of $7, $77, $777, $7,777. Fixation on seven there, you can tell. Uh, The price tag was to be an estimated $250 million. In today's money, that's $1.3 billion. In 1981, with the city of faith still in financial trouble, Roberts claimed he saw a vision of a 900-foot-tall Jesus standing over his city. An appeal letter based on this vision resulted in substantial donations allowing Roberts to complete his 60-story clinic and 30-story hospital. In 1983, uh, with Roberts' 20-story research tower needing funds to be completed, uh, Roberts sent out letters claiming that God had chosen him to cure cancer, or find a cure for cancer, using the research tower. He asked each recipient of the letter to send him $240. In a conversation with Jesus that lasted seven hours, Jesus gave the following instructions, quote, in, uh, in that claim, in that, or this is what Robert says, in that calm voice I've heard so many times before, here's what God said. Ask each friend and partner for $240 to be given now or to send $20 a month for the next 12 months. Do this until the full 240 is planted. Do as I tell you, obey me, tell them that this is the Lord speaking through you, or Roberts to them, when when are you going to obey me, when? And God threatened to kill him if he did not obey. To those who responded and gave Roberts $240, uh, Roberts quotes the Lord as saying, I will show them spectacular things of my miracle power. Roberts then listed 14 promises that God had given, including improved health, peace, joy, energy, longer life, and more money, and additional gifts of the Holy Spirit. The city of faith and the hospital and the medical school was closed in 1989 for lack of funds. Apparently, the Lord failed in his cure for cancer and in his building of a, of a medical center through Roberts that had uh, closed just a decade after he collected the money and started the groundbreaking. You know, it's no wonder then that uh, one pastor said this about the charismatic movement. And I'm quoting here from Chuck Smith. If you know anything about the past, Chuck Smith is one of the leading charismatic pastors in the world. He is a man who uh, started the Calvary Chapels. Uh, He was on the cutting edge of the movement, the charismatic movement throughout the uh, globe. And uh, a man who wrote uh, and led in many ways in that regard. But he wrote a book after he saw what was happening in the movement. He wrote a book called Charisma and Charismania. And he said... Charismatics have placed experience above the word, and as a consequence, charismatics have become a fertile field for strange and unscriptural doctrines proliferating through their ranks. That was not said by John MacArthur or somebody like me. It was said by a person who was steeped in the movement. 
You see, here's the problem, and this is what Smith recognized. If you cut yourself off from the Word of God, if you place experience and so-called voices from heaven above the authority and the application of the truth of God's Word, then you are opening yourself up to every errant thing possible out there. And as a result of that, uh, we have seen that uh, already in our study the last two weeks that, that tongues, is at, which is at the heart, the signature gift of the charismatic movement, uh, is useless for, an, for a number of reasons that Paul has identified. Now somebody might say, why in the world are you preaching on this? Why are you, why are you wasting our time on this subject? Because a lot of you don't care, and a lot of you say this is kind of negative, and what's the point? Well, let me, let me say this. Is I, I'm doing this for two reasons. One, it's in the Word of God. I assume that God has given us what he wants us to know. And we are going to expound upon and understand as much as we can of God's word. We don't get to pick and choose the parts we like and then expound on those. We, get, we choose to, to teach the word of God as he's given it to us. And the second reason is this is not a minor thing done in a corner somewhere. The tongues, tongues and charismatic movement has infiltrated throughout all Christianity. It is the, uh, it, you can hardly find an, a, a Christian in uh, the southern hemisphere who is not involved in the charismatic movement. It's all over America and it has transformed and I would say deformed much of Christianity today. It is not a minor thing. It's extremely important. It's not a secondary doctrine. It's a primary doctrine. Does God's word have the final authority or does something else? And so this is important stuff and we want to see what God has to say. So Paul spends all of chapter 14 on this subject. And as he does so, he's already told us, we've seen in the last two weeks, that tongue speaking in the local church, unless interpreted, is absolutely useless for four reasons. Uh, Number one, tongues are not understandable by others, verses one and two. Uh, Tongues builds no one up, verses three and four. Tongues profit no one, verses five and six. And tongue confuse people, verses seven through 12. Now in the verses before us, Paul is going to show us something else. He's going to say, not only are tongues useless in the church when they're untranslated, that's so we have a message from God, but also tongues are useless in private devotions. They're useless in in your private closet at home, in your prayer closet. They're useless for that purpose. And he gives two major reasons for saying that, that we're going to look at together today. First of all, tongues leave the mind unfruitful. It leaves the mind unfruitful. Look at, uh, we're going to look at verses 13 to 19. Before I, before I read the verses again, um, I would mention this, that, that a number of charismatics, including Chuck Smith, that I just quoted from, if you don't know who Chuck Smith is, uh, you don't know church history of, of recent origin, you might want to find out about some of that stuff. But nevertheless, uh, Chuck Smith agreed that church, the tongues in the church are pretty much useless, unless, of course, they're interpreted, because he understood Scripture. But he believed that in private they're okay. Matter of fact, they're very good. And here's what he says in the same book I just quoted from. He said, personal devotions are intended to build up myself in Christ. When I speak in tongues, my personal devotions, in my personal devotions, it is one of the ways which Christ is built up within me. Speaking in tongues is also an excellent way to praise the Lord. Here's, here's what he says. Here's his thinking. I find difficulty in expressing these deepest feelings in my spirit. It's wonderful to be able by the Spirit to express my praises to God without having to limit it to the narrow channel of my own intellect. In other words, he sees great value in being able to pray in a tongue uh, and praise God in a tongue that he doesn't even understand what he's saying because his spirit is lifted up, he thinks, and built up. 
even though he, his mind is, is unfruitful, he doesn't know what it says. In other words, it makes him feel close to God. Now, I want you to marinate on that just a moment. This is the essence of much, much of Christianity today. If it makes me feel good, it must be good. That is exactly what Scripture does not agree with. It doesn't matter how you feel. A lot of things that make you feel good. The question is, is, is it the Word of God that is teaching these things? He, he says, I love to pray without thinking about it, without knowledge, without in, intellect, because it makes me feel good. Well, where did that, such an idea come from? Even for a guy like Chuck Smith, who's preached through the Bible many times, uh, he, uh, it comes from Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that we'll look at together today. Paul argues just the opposite. He says that, that, uh, that praying in a tongue at home is useless for a number of reasons. And here's what he has to say about that. It's, it's just the opposite. Verse, first of all, there, as a matter of fact, there's two reasons here. First of all, they benefit nobody. Look at verse 13. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. So once again, unless interpreted, they have no value. So if you're going to pray in a tongue, you need to interpret. That's his whole point. Tongues without interpretations help no one. Secondly, they benefit, they don't even benefit the speaker. Verse 14, he says, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. My mind is unfruitful. You get it? I can pray in a tongue, but I don't know what I'm saying. There's no value to me. I don't understand what I'm saying. I don't, know what, I don't even know if it's good or bad. I don't, I, it's nothing, because I don't understand it. Now, the charismatics believe that uh, there are the, this verse divides prayer into two types. Okay? On the one hand, it's, uh, it's praying with the intellect, and the other kind of praying is praying with the spirit. That is tongues. Now, if that's, is that the case? Is there two kinds of prayer? Let's take a look closely. First of all, there is no such thing as praying in a tongue in the New Testament. Nowhere do we ever find anyone doing this. Nowhere do we find anyone practicing this. Nowhere, nowhere are we ever told to do this. Uh, all examples of tongues speaking in the Bible, and there's only three in the book of Acts, chapter 2, 10, and 19, are public and outward and have nothing to do with prayer. Praying in the Spirit is always with the mind. Uh, whenever you find prayers in Scripture, how many prayers do you think are in the Bible? Uh, there's hundreds. If you count all the Psalms, which are, we consider most of them prayers, we have hundreds of prayers in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. Every one of them is audible. Every one of them is understandable. Even if you're praying to your, in your own uh, prayer closet, so to speak, uh, you're, you're praying intellectually. You're praying with the mind. Paul says in Romans chapter, or Philippians chapter 4, he says, make your requests known to God. That is, go to God and with requests made known to him. Nowhere in Scripture are we told to ever pray in any way that bypasses our minds. Now verse 14 then gives us the reason why, why tongue speaking should, should, should interpret. If we, if we don't interpret, it's unfruitful to my mind. My mind is unfruitful. Therefore, all tongues have to be interpreted to have any value. That includes home or in public in the church. So this is a correction. But somebody said, look at verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. Right there it says, if you speak in a tongue, you edify yourself. Now remember, this is a correction. Paul's not saying go home and edify yourself. 
He is saying that, that that's what people are doing and it's wrong. Why do I know that? Because that is what he's been saying all the way through this section. Go back to chapter 10, verse 24. Follow his line of reasoning. And this is very intense, systematic reasoning Paul is giving us. So I hope you're able to follow this. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. So he started with that in a general sense. Let no one seek their own good but their neighbors. Okay? Verse, chapter 12, verse 7. He says this. He says, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit, that's gifts, for what? The common good. For the good of the body of Christ, for one another. Chapter 14, verse 12, where we're at now, he says, So you also, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Uh, he's saying here then that, that all gifts are given for the purpose of edification of the body of Christ. That's the purpose of gifts. They were never given to benefit yourself. They were never given to edify yourself. They're always to be given, always given to edify the body of Christ. Let's test that. Let's take some other gifts. How about the gift of giving? Of the 19 gifts identified in the New Testament, one is giving. And since we're all supposed to be givers in the Lord's work and so forth, I, I assume this is a gift of somebody who has some money and they're able to use it in such a way that they build up the church of Christ in their generosity. That's a great gift, isn't it? Now, what if I told you I have the gift of giving, but I only give to myself? Right? I mean, I, who, who am I building up? Myself. I'm building up my bank account. My network is getting bigger and bigger. Would you think that's a great use of the spiritual gift of giving? I doubt it. How about teaching? If I have the gift of teaching, but I teach nobody, what good is that? Gifts are given for reaching out. How about edification or, or encouragement? If I don't encourage anybody but me, what good is that? You go right on down the list. How about administrations? So the gift of administration. What if the only thing you use the gift, you have the gift, but the only thing you use it for is to organize your sock drawer? Yeah? Is, is that a great use of the gift of administrations? Hardly. All gifts are given for a common purpose, building up one another. They're not given for selfish reasons. They're not given for building up of ourselves. No gift is ever given for that purpose. And so he's saying in verse 4, you're misusing the gift that I've given you. So tongues uninterpreted in home or in the church are useless. Then he get, draws two deductions from this, starting with verse 15. Two deductions for what he's just said. Number one, the spirit and the mind must work together. Look at verse 15. It's a very, very important verse. By the way, I'm often misunderstood. Verse 15. What is the outcome then? I will, I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will pray with the Spirit and I will sing with the mind also. Now I want you to note this verse carefully because it says exactly what it means and yet has been misinterpreted and misapplied and misused by millions of people. Okay, It doesn't take a Bible scholar to figure out what this verse is saying. Just read it. Look what it says. Four. Now he's drawing a deduction. Four. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Verse 14, verse 15. What is the outcome then? Here's what the outcome is. I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing in the spirit and I will sing in the, with the mind also. Notice he does not separate the mind and the spirit. Now, this is where people go wrong. They, they, they change the word and 
to but. And they say, and they've translated this way. What is the outcome? I will pray with the spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. Two different things. I can do both. Sometimes with the, in tongues, in unintelligible language, which I don't understand and nobody else does either. And sometimes I pray uh, intelligently. I can do both. There's two options. He doesn't say that. Just look at it. He says, I will do both. I will pray with my spirit and my mind also. I will sing with my spirit and my mind also. There are not two different kinds of prayer going on here. All, all this praying and this singing should be done with the mind and with the heart, with the spirit also. You know, to, to, the, to these uh, Corinthians, there's nothing new here. You see, right down at the temples all over, the, all over Corinth were people that were speaking in gibberish tongues. That was common in the ancient, langu- ancient religions and it's common in many places today. But it's not languages. The New Testament use of tongues is languages, not, not unintelligible gibberish. And therefore they saw that every day, nothing new there. Paul is saying, you're going to be different. You're not going to be like the people down at the pagan temples who just speak nonsense. You're going to be different and you're going to speak with your mind and you're going to speak with your heart and you're going to be understandable. Otherwise, you have no point in speaking in tongues in the church or at home. And so that makes some sense, doesn't it? You know, somebody the other day, I think met at Walmart, said, you know, your song last week about the witch doctor was pretty good. But uh, I've, got, I've got one, she said. I think this is what she told me. How about, do you remember, you remember some of the old timers, your songs of yesterday when music was really music, you know? Uh, where she was shuffling her feet and clicking her fingers, Vern, and she was singing what? Do what diddy diddy dum diddy do. He, this guy takes a look at her and he says, wow. Because she looked fine. She looked good. So he got to know her, and she, they were walking hand in hand, saying, do what did he, did he, dumb did he do? And not only that, but they started going out together, saying, do what did he, did he, dumb did he do? Next thing you know, wedding bells are chiming, saying, do what did he, did he, dumb did he do? Now, I don't know what he saw in her, outside of she looking fine, he said, but the conversation was a little limited, don't you think? I mean, exactly what did you understand with that? So, I mean, after a bit, that's going to get a little old. I mean, you marry her. And you say, honey, what's for supper? And she said, do I diddy diddy dum diddy do? And you say, man, I had that yesterday. Can we have something else? You say, hey, uh, what, we're going to church this morning. Do I diddy diddy dum diddy do? I mean, the number one problem in marriage is communication. These guys don't even understand what they're saying. And we look at that. That's a silly little song, right? It means absolutely nothing. I'm not trying to make fun in any sense, but except to know this. They weren't saying anything that was intelligent. Therefore, they really didn't have a relationship, right? And if that's your understanding of how you relate with God, you're not saying anything of intelligence. And he's not saying anything of intelligence to you through his word. Then you have no relationship. And so that's what Paul is saying here to these people. Later on in verse 32, he wants to say, look, you're never out of control. He says, verse 32, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Well, you know what that means? That means you're never out of control. You're never speaking in ecstatic languages or even prophesying in such a way that you don't know what you're doing and you have no control. Verse 33, he says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. All this, as he's going to say, will bring about confusion and not uh, what God wants to bring into their lives. 
And yet the Corinthians and many today make the mark of maturity the ability to throw your mind out of gear and to say things you don't understand. Others believe that, uh, that being slain in the spirit or falling down in a trance or barking like a dog or roaring like a lion, making animal noises. Is our, and these I'm not making this tough up, by the way, unfortunately. These are marks of the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we know the Holy Spirit is in our lives because we do things such as that. Paul says just the opposite. God is not the God of confusion. He's not. And so the first deduction is the mind and the spirit work together. Secondly, tongues have a very limited use as well. Tongues have a very limited use. Look at verse 16 and 17. He says, otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who is filled to the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you're saying? For you're giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. Now, Paul's totally wiped out at this point the, uh, the Corinthians, not to mention the modern-day use of tongues. He just, he just wiped it out. They had, and, and I'll just kind of drift right, go right down the line with you here. They had placed so much importance on tongues that they thought every Christian should speak in tongues. Look at 1230. And follow along with me. Follow his argument. This is not uh, Twitter time where your mind listens to two or three sentences and falls asleep. You've got to think. Paul is building an argument. He's calling us to think. Verse 30, he says, these people say, all gifts of tongue is so great, everybody should speak in tongues. And Paul said here, no. Verse 30, not everybody has the gift of tongues. But they they thought gifts was the most important of all the tongues, the premium mark of their church. Paul says in verse 28, it's the most inferior of all the gifts, as he ranks them here. It's the least of all the importance of the gifts. He's... They thought that it was spiritual to throw their minds out of gear and to speak ecstatically. Paul said it was a mark of the flesh. Verse 15 of chapter 14, he says, I will pray with my mind and my spirit, not just my spirit. Verse 33, God is not the God of confusion. Whenever whenever you are in a a, a church service, whenever you're in a Christian environment, whenever uh, you're, you're seeing things happening, you think is of the Spirit, always go back to verses like this. God is not a God of confusion. God is a God of order. When people do something different than that, and they call it the movement of the Spirit, there's something seriously wrong. It shouldn't take you long to figure that out. In chapter 14, once again, they thought they were building themselves up and coming closer to God in their personal use of tongues, Paul said they're being selfish. Verse 4 of chapter 14, the one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. Not the, not the body of Christ that the gift was given for. They thought that their church services were lively, just filled with, with all these things, these chaotic things, the tongue speaking over here, prophecy over there, uh, women out of line, as we saw in chapter 11 and later in 14 over there. They were just out of uh, all these things. And Paul says these, serv- these confusing services were not of God. God is not the author of confusion. We already saw that verse. Now Paul sums it all up in verses 18 and 19. Look at verse 18. He says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than ten words with a tongue. Now, he's saying then that, that, you know, and this is obvious, I would not, I'd rather speak just 
ten, five words of intellect that helps people than 10,000 or 10 million, you know, of, of, of a language that nobody understands. But people skip that verse, go back to verse 18 and say, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. And they say, look, Paul said, I'm thankful I speak in tongues. How do you get around that? Well, I do get around that because Paul spoke in tongues to fulfill its purpose. When we know what the purpose of tongues is, we understand what he is saying. And so we move on now to the second reason that tongues are useless in the church uninterpreted and useless in private. The first reason was that tongues have no place in those environments because the mind is unfruitful. The second reason he gives us is because they do not fulfill their purpose. They do not fulfill their purpose. Starting with verse 20, I'm going to give you the traditional hook book look. A teaching method that we often use here. You hook, hook people, get their attention. You book them, you give them the information. And then you look them, you give them application. Okay, you ready for hook book look? Okay, I'm going to hook you. I'm not going to do it, Paul is. Verse 20, he hooks them. He says this, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet be evil as, uh, but in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. There's the hook. He's insulting them. He's calling them children in their thinking. Now who wants to be called children? You're, you're just acting like a child. And most adults don't appreciate that very much, right? And so he is getting their attention. He wants them to pay attention. He wants them to look up. He wants them to quit daydreaming and quit doing whatever else they're doing and following the, the, the experiences they think they're having and, and think in a biblical sense. There's two abilities that children have that Paul's probably focusing on. Number one, they, they, they're pleased with trifles. They have a different value system than adults. Uh, they, they, they see things that are very unimportant to us that are very important to them. A number of years ago, I was having my birthday and having a birth, little birthday party. And we had a cake and the candles getting ready to be blown out. And uh, just before I blew out the candles, my son Brian said, uh, Dad, you need to make a wish. So I said, well, Brian, what would you have me make a wish for? He says, and here is his, his request. Wish that your boys had more toys. <laughs> Unfortunately, he was 31 when he said that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, that part wasn't true. The other part was. Children have a different value system, right? The Corinthians could not miss the comparison. They're playing around with tongues at like children instead of understanding what it means. He says it's time to grow up. Quit being babies, grow up. Secondly, children are more, more innocent. Now, we know children are sinners. If, if you don't believe that, you never had a child. But uh, at the same time, they sin differently. They're more innocent. They're, more, they're less sophisticated than us. They learn sophistication and sinning a little later. And so he's saying here, if you want to be like children, be like children in your innocence, but not in your evilness. Okay, that's the, that's the hook. He's got their attention. Okay, you've called us babies. All right, what are you going to say next? Now he gives the book, the information, verse 21. And this is book. This is heavy. And that's why most people miss this. You shouldn't miss this. So I'm going to explain it to you. I'm going to go into some detail here. Once again, this is not Twitter fair. 
This is not a couple lines off a blog. This is in-depth stuff, but it's at the very essence of understanding the purpose of tongues. Okay? And by the way, this is the only passage in all the Bible that tells us the purpose of tongues. So it's very important we get it. Verse 21. In the law, and by the way, the word law is often used in the New Testament to reference the whole Old Testament. Not just the first five books. In the law it is written. And then he quotes from Isaiah. By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people. And even so they will not listen to me says the Lord. Alright. We got the verse. Why is he using it? Uh, I want to go back to two passages in the Old Testament to show you what's going on. We're going to go back to first of all to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28, because this is sort of a prequel to the Isaiah passage. Moses is about to die. He is saying farewell basically to the, the Jews, the Israelites, uh, as they get ready to go into the land. He's giving them the book of Deuteronomy, kind of a, a second law. That's what it means, Deuteronomy. It's kind of a, a, rehearse, a review of what the first four books had taught. But he comes to chapter uh, 28, verse 45, and he gives them a warning, a prophetic warning. This is now, remember, about 1400 B.C. And he says this, verse 45, So all these curses, and he just mentioned a lot of curses, shall come on you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed. Why? Because you would not obey the Lord your God, by keeping his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you. They shall become a sign. Notice that word sign. And a wonder on you and on your descendants forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart. For the abundance of all things. Therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you. In hunger and thirst and nakedness and the lack of all things. And he will put an iron yoke on your neck. Until he has destroyed you. Now verse 20, 46. 49. 49 says this. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar. From the end of the earth. As the eagle swoops down. A nation whose language you shall not understand. Now he's warning them. They haven't gone into the promised land yet. And he's saying. God, I've laid before you in, in the earlier chapters. Curses and blessings. Blessings are yours if you obey. Curses are yours if you don't. This is to the nation of Israel. Very particular, particular things. And he's, he's saying to them, if you don't obey, and he's, he's prophesying here, he's, this is going to happen. Because you will not obey me, I'm going to send among you a, a people that will swoop down on you like an eagle, whose language you do not understand, and you will know at that moment, not that you just randomly got wrecked by a, a, an army, but that I have sent them against you personally because of your disobedience to me. When they come, remember they're in the land of Israel, once they get established, they have their own language, their own laws, their own government, and, and they speak Hebrew. When you start hearing in your midst all these people that have overtaken you speaking in a language you don't know, know this for certain, this is my judgment on you. For disobedience. 
So you got that? 1400 B.C. Go over to Isaiah now where, where uh, Paul quotes from. He doesn't quote from Deuteronomy. He quotes from Isaiah, which is, it, is bringing to fruition the, the prophecy of, of Moses. I think I'll start with verse 10 to give you context. Isaiah, in chapter 28, is, the, uh, is this great prophet. He's living about 700 B.C. Israel is going through the being ransacked and destroyed by the, by the Assyrians. About 700 and some, uh, uh, 750, 720 uh, B.C. They have not yet been destroyed. And here's what Isaiah is told to say, verse 10. For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. Now watch that for a moment. Often we use that verse, I think a little wrongly, of saying this is what we do in a church. We teach the word of God, line upon line, order on order, a little here, a little there. That makes some sense. You know, we're, we're always doing a little bit more, trying to make the word of God understandable. Okay. But he's seeing this as a negative. What he's going to say, I'm going to read the verse, but what he's, going, what he's saying is, I sent you prophets who spoke to you in intelligible language and gave you my word. Matter of fact, I dumbed it down so much that it was like teaching kindergarten kids. Line upon line, order upon order, as simplified as I could make it. I wanted you to know what I had to say. Verse 11, indeed he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He is, he, that's the verse Paul quotes, he paraphrases a little bit, but that's what he quotes. He who said to them, here's rest, give rest to the weary, here's repose, but they would not listen. So, the word of the Lord to them will be, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there, that they may go and stumble backwards, be broken, snared, and taken captive. That's judgment, folks, right? Why was God going to judge them? And this is going to be the Assyrian captivity, and followed a hundred years or so later by the Babylonian captivities for the Judah. Why? Exactly what Moses said. They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't obey. They rejected me. They turned from me. And therefore he says to them, when I send among you a people whose language you do not understand, let it be known. This is not an accident. This is not just that the Babylonians of the Assyrians had superior armies. This is judgment from Almighty God because you would not listen and you would not obey. And that's exactly what happened. 721 B.C., Israel was destroyed. Five... Uh, of the ultimately 586 B.C., Judah is destroyed for the same reason. Okay, got it? That's Old Testament. Go back to our passage now in the book of First Corinthians and ask yourself, why did he quote this verse? What is he doing? In the law is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. What are they saying? He's quoting from the Old Testament. He's repeating the judgment prophecy 
of the Old Testament. When you see a people in your midst whose language you do not understand, let it be known, let it be known that you are under the judgment of God. So what does tongues have to do with this? And why is he quoting this verse here? Keep in mind the judgment of God is coming. The sign of the judgment of God is these languages they do not understand in their midst. And, and that's going to happen in 70 AD to these people. I'll come back to that in just a second. But I want you to take a look at the look. The application. He's not done. Verse 22. So then. That's his application. So then. What? So then tongues are for a sign. Not to those who believe. But to unbelievers. Tongues. This, and this is the only place in the Bible where we're told the purpose of tongues. They are a sign to whom? Unbelievers. He quotes from the Old Testament. The sign to the, un, to the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, was this judgment was coming because of their sin. Tongues is a sign, I believe, to unbelieving Jews for the rejection of God. You see, they had ju been judged before. They've been scattered all over before. A lot of them come back to, to Israel. Not all of them by any means, but a lot had come back. And then one day, God sent his son to redeem them from their sins. Remember? If Jesus Christ came to this earth to save them from their sins. To call them to repentance. That was the first message he ever had. To call them to repentance to follow him. The Gospel of John, if you believe in him, you will have eternal life. All you need to do is believe in him. Believe that he came for you. He would ultimately die for their sins. He would be resurrected for their sins. Their, their goal was to believe in him. What did they do? They crucified him. The ultimate rejection of God was the crucifixion of the Son of God. They murdered Jesus. They murdered Jesus. Ultimate. The, the Son of God, get it, who came in perfection, who came to, to save them from their sins, who came to redeem them, is murdered by them because they want nothing to do with him. Of course, today, many, hear, many people today hear this message, maybe some of you, and you don't care. You're, you're, you're like the Israelites. You just reject it. God does not ignore that. You have options. You can believe in him and be saved, or you can reject him and suffer the consequences. And so he says to the people here, he says, look, it's a sign. It's a sign of what? Judgment coming to the unbelieving Jews. About 20 years later, after this was written, not quite 20 years, the Roman army moves into the region a little bit before that, destroying city after city after city after city. They finally come to Jerusalem, absolutely ransack it. Destroy the temple, scatter the Jews. It is estimated by Josephus that over a million Jews were killed. They were scattered all over the world. Now occupying Jerusalem were people who did not speak their language. Everywhere they went in exile, they, they were surrounded by people that did not speak their language. The sign had been fulfilled. You see, 
Once a sign has been fulfilled, you don't need a sign anymore because you have the reality. If you're coming into Springfield and it says, Springfield five miles, that sign says five more miles. When you get into Springfield, you don't find any signs that says Springfield down the road. You're here. Once the sign was fulfilled, its purpose was fulfilled, and it was no longer. The reality was there. Judgment had come. And since 70 AD, no one has ever spoken in biblical tongues because the sign has been fulfilled. It's been fulfilled. Scripture prophesied that signs, that tongues would cease in chapter 13, verse 8. History, church history verifies it. There's almost, almost universal silence about tongues to the 20th century. This is a man-made, and I'm not trying to be harsh, I'm really not, because I know a number of people who, who believe in tongues and so forth who are very good Christians, who love the Lord Jesus, who read their Bibles, who are felt, would fellowship with us, who we'll spend eternity with, and we love them. But I do believe they're deceived because of lack of understanding of what the Scripture says. This is an emotional, man-made system that has led multitudes astray in emotionalism and experientialism and away from the truth of the Word of God. And there's always consequences for that. And that's why he says in verse 20, do not be deceived, do not be like children in your thinking, but grow up and be mature. A few years ago, I had a young lady come see me. She had grown up in our church, a fine young lady, had grown up in our understanding what we teach here. She knew do it pretty well. And she'd gone up, got grown up, went away, uh, and got involved in a number of other um, isms or ideas and so forth. And one of them was the tongue-speaking situation. She got involved in a church that did that. And, uh, and she couldn't remember for the life of her why I'm against it. She thinks it's a wonderful, wonderful experience. So to her credit, she came and saw me one day, and we talked for about an hour. And I went through all these principles with her. And then I finally took her to, uh, to this verse here that says that the purpose of gifts is as a sign, of tongues as a sign. And it's the only place in all the Word of God that tells us its purpose. It is a sign to unbelievers, therefore it has no place in the church. It's a sign to unbelievers, therefore it has no place in your, your prayer closet at home. Because there's no unbelievers there, and there's no unbelieving Jews there, and none of them need to hear about the sign of judgment coming upon Israel. This is the only place in Scripture that teaches that and shows what it is. So I gave her all that and talked about it and said, here it is. This is pretty clear. She thanked me, walked out, and ignored everything I had to say. Why? Here it is. Here's the essence of modern Christianity. She had had an experience. And it doesn't matter what the Word of God says. If you've had an experience, that trumps everything else. I got news for you. That's not biblical Christianity. The Word of God trumps everything else. And it doesn't matter what your experience is. It doesn't matter what your emotional bent is. It doesn't matter what you want. It matters what God says, what God wants. And so we conform our lives to what God teaches. Why in the world would Paul put a whole chapter in the Bible about tongues? Unless by God's inspiration, he was made aware of the fact that this would be a problem 
that would drag people in a wrong direction from the things of God and into, into isms that would keep them from being what God wanted them to be. And so he push, puts us in his word to help us understand. I hope it's helpful to you. And if you have other questions about it, please let me know. Father, we thank you. For your word, uh, these are not the most pleasant of passages of scripture. These are corrections, and who likes corrections? And yet, Lord, we need corrections. And I pray that wherever we might be on this continuum, that we, we would grow from it, we would understand it. Uh, we would be able, Lord, to put our life in order according to your word and what it has to say. And that we would, actually, we would truly be biblical-based Christians, not experiential-based believers. I pray, Lord, also for those here that, that uh, like the Jews, would look at the Son of God coming for them and, and either dismiss him or reject him. And I pray, Father, that there is anyone here who is not a believer as they look into their own heart and life, that they will see the great need to bow before you in repentance and faith and receive you as their Savior. I pray that that would happen even this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.